welcome to The Knowing Podcast. We're here to talk about healing, about insight, about cultivating and living from our own internal wisdom, and about the intention to live beautifully and compassionately as a human being during these times. We're really happy you're here. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Knowing Podcast. I'm Ciel. And I am sitting here solo today, uh, for the moment, just recording an intro for today's episode. As um, what you will experience today is a little different than what we've been doing historically on the podcast. Allison is not with me today. She will be returning for future episodes, of course. Um, but today I am joined by a guest. And this is this, I've had this intention for a while to do some interviews, I suppose, or have some dialogues with healers and philosophers and teachers who are on the planet right now and who I have immense respect for and who have been very influential teachers on my path. And I've reached out to a few people and um, many people have been very gracious about offering to come onto the podcast. So over the next few months, I'm going to be recording and releasing some of these conversations. And uh, this is the very first. And today you, um, I think, get the immense pleasure of listening to and engaging with uh, Stephen Herod Buner. And Stephen... He was definitely the first person that came to mind, I suppose, when I started thinking about people I'd love to have a conversation with. Um, on one level, I suppose, because his teachings have been so immensely influential and impactful on my healing journey. He has written 23 books, I think, and has done immense research in the fields of, um, I mean, he calls it Gaian Studies. He runs a foundation for, of, for Gaian Studies but in herbalism and healing and relationship that the relationship we have with the natural world and our bodies, he is such a brilliant man. And as he describes himself, a true polymath for sure in all aspects. Um, I first actually connected with Stephen about 10 years ago, I think. I was living in California and doing some writing for a magazine and I decided that I wanted to connect with him on a purely selfish level because I was struggling with Lyme disease at the time. And I was writing an article about Lyme disease for this magazine. And he, Stephen came up with a protocol that is still used by many people that I know and have worked with and for, um, for treating Lyme disease through herbal means, herbal antivirals and antimicrobials. And, you know, at the time, like on my Lyme disease journey, I had tried pretty much everything and came across his protocol and just, it just changed everything. And and so I really was wanting to have a conversation with him. And we had this just rad back and forth for like a couple of hours, I think, way back then. He's, as you'll hear, so funny, so brilliant. You know, he's he's an incredible inspiration as a human being. And uh, yeah, I was just stoked to be able to have another conversation with him. So we have a pretty wide ranging conversation. A lot of it today you'll find um, centers on grief. This is really a, a big part of where Stephen is focusing his work, as you'll hear him talk about in his writings on the necessity of grieving and, and what grieving and a, an authentic grief process means for us as human beings at this time. Um, but we, yeah, we run the gamut of a bunch of other topics and, and I, I hope that it will feel as meaningful for you as it did for me. 
Um, I'll offer Stephen's website. You can find him at Stephen Herod. It's H-A-R-R-O-D, Buhner, B-U-H-N-E-R.com. He has an immense amount of free information on his website. Do go check it out. It's incredible. Um, he alludes to and references his COVID protocol, which, you know, it's it's worth reading. He's researched the shit out of this thing and it is just an incredible read. Uh, a little bit <laughs> overwhelming for sure and a little bit scary, but offers some protocols for um, addressing COVID and COVID after effects and symptoms. And he, um, I, I believe he said he's, he's going to be turning this into a, another component of one of his books at some point too. So it's such an amazing document. So check it out. Um, if you haven't read his books, they're all amazing, but man, oh, yeah, they're all amazing. Just just go explore for sure. And Souling Language has um, very much changed my life. So uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy. And I look forward to offering more of these conversations for you uh, over in the next coming while. So and I hope you're doing well out there. So good morning, Stephen. Thank you so much for being here. It has been, I think, uh, 10 years since we last spoke, um, maybe nine, 10 years. Uh, I, was, I was living back in San Francisco at the time. So um, I would love to just start off today by asking you, you know, what kind of work you're doing. I have read every book that you've put out um, up until now, but I know that you have a recent book, uh, Becoming Vegetalista, and I have not uh, engaged with that book yet, but I'd love to hear more about, you know, the where it came from and, and sort of your intentions with it. Well, right now I'm actually working on two books, and um, the Vegetalista book is one of them, and that book, the first quarter of it was published in a small uh, limited edition hardcover um, with a publisher in England, um, about 650 copies or so. And that book's taking um, years of work, longer than I've ever spent on anything. And sort of in the middle of that, another book emerged out of it um, on ecological grief, and the title of that is Earth Grief, the Journey into and through ecological loss. And that's a thing that all of us are having to deal with more frequently now, the tremendous grief that's coming from the destruction of Earth, um, ecosystems of forests that we've cared about, and that was, um, uh, there were articles appearing pretty much every day in the news media about that before the pandemic hit. And now, of course, the pandemic and the meltdown of world governments, especially in the United States, have become, you know, a major topic of conversation. So I ended up having to actually interrupt that and do a 120-page monograph on the COVID virus and using herbal medicines to treat it, which took quite a bit of time as well. So, but really, the my main focus is on those two books that I mentioned, and because I'm pretty much retired now from the road um, in any teaching, I can spend years on the books rather than having to do it in a year like I did the ones before. Okay. So um, can I ask where this monograph that you put out for 
for using herbal medicines with COVID. Where can people access? Where can I access this? I didn't know that you'd had that out. Oh, I have a website with kind of a blog on it and where I post articles that I write from time to time, and that's at stephenherodbuner.com. Oh, okay. And so people can purchase it there? Oh, no, you can just have it. It's free. Oh, amazing. The herbal work that I do on things like that now, I don't charge anything for. I don't do consultations anymore. And I get probably 300 or so emails a month from people asking for information about things like this. And I do my best to answer as many of them as I can. But the... I don't really agree with people making a lot of money off of other people's misery and suffering. Hmm. I, I would definitely be on the same page with you there. Can I ask, um, I mean, and not having encountered the, your writings on it, like what, what kind of herbal treatments do you, are you suggesting for COVID and working with coronavirus? Well, it's actually, it's fairly extensive. The, that's why it's a 120-page monograph. Right. The, um, there's really a number of things involved, and it's more complicated than I can really go into in a, um, a phone conversation. But there's suggestions for what to do to um, help prevent COVID, to also build up your body. So if you do get it, the symptom picture is fairly minor. Then there's a whole protocol to use if you be, do become ill with it um, so you can treat it no matter the degree of severity. And then there's a very, very extensive protocol for what's being called long-haul treatment. The people that have had COVID but never really seem to get over a lot of the symptoms. Right. And because the the virus is very much like Lyme disease or something like that, it's a very, very much of a stealth pathogen in its own way, and it affects virtually every organ system in the body, and so that's why the protocol is so complex in that uh, you need to, to put things into play to protect the heart, to protect the blood from clotting because it causes extensive clots, to um, basically protect the brain because there's a lot of neurological problems that come from it, too protect the lungs, even the GI tract. So, you know, it's very extensive. Mm. Uh, that's something that I really, I really took from our previous conversation where I was interviewing you uh, because I, at the time, did have Lyme disease and I was doing an article for a magazine um, on using so-called alternative or complementary therapies for Lyme. And you'd said to me in that conversation um, that it was essential to consider the intelligence of the spirochete. And, and it really, I mean, I'd, I'd sort of read a few things from people uh, suggesting something similar, but um, I mean, you saying this, that like the, the coronavirus has a, a similar kind of stealth capacity as the spirochetes. Like, do you see it as a, as a more intelligent, if that's, a, you know, an applicable term in this circumstance, than say other viruses or other infectious agents? No, all microbial organisms are highly intelligent. They mm. always have been. And there's, you know, we're really operating from a late 19th, early 20th century model in our culture, industrial cultures now, when we look at the microbial world. And, you know, there's still this widespread belief that 
you know, because we're so clever and, you know, our forebrain and we have opposable thumbs and stuff and, you know, science and you know, <laughs> PhDs and stuff, uh-huh. you know, that we can, you know, we're so smart that we can actually do whatever we want to the world around us because it's really incredibly stupid. And so we can control outcomes and we can, you know, make our life how we want and there's no side effects to doing that. But in actual fact, the microbial world is about 4 billion years old. It's highly adaptable and intelligent. It's responded to threats a lot greater than human overpopulation are. Antibacterials or antimicrobials uh, for a very long time. So, really, the looking at the COVID virus, it's the beginning of very severe ecological responses to overpopulation and ecosystem disruption. I mean, that's right. what we're dealing with. I've been writing about that for almost 30 years now. Um, with a great deal more focus in my books, Herbal Antibiotics and Herbal Antivirals, and as well as in, you know, the many books I've written on Lyme disease and its treatment. And basically we're coming up, our paradigm that we've been trained in ever since we went to school in the Western cultures, we're running into... um, the reality of the ecological world that we are embedded in and our paradigm is beginning to fail that's and it's failing on multiple levels that's why you see part of it's the social unrest part of it's climate change another part of it is the emergence of pathogens that it's going to be very difficult for us to treat you know population problems have a horrible way of solving themselves, and the earth has ways to reduce impacts on ecosystem functioning that it's developed over billions of years. We've been around for, you know, uh, 30, 40,000, 100,000, you know, all these guesses, but we're outmanned and outgunned, basically. So the COVID virus is a highly intelligent organism. It's adapting as Everybody predicted that it would. I've talked about that kind of adaptable um, innovation in microbes a lot already in other um, places. But the the thing is, it's not going to go away easily. We're not going to go back to normal, which is probably a good thing because it's normal that got us into this mess mm. to begin with. So... Um, it's forcing an adjustment in our paradigm and in our thinking and our relationship to the wildness of the world. It's, you know, the, it's, the way to think about it is we've created a virtual reality that we've been um, inundated with from the minute we begin watching television or going to school, and that virtual reality has very little to do with the real world. And the real world... The ecological world is foundational, and this virtual world sort of sits atop it, but it has, and we extract from the ecological world the resources to keep it going, but it's not sustainable to do that. So, mm-hmm. like many times in human history, we're face to face with difficult realities, and we're not going to come off very well in the process. 
right? And it, uh, I had the the opportunity of interviewing Robin Wall Kimmerer a few months ago. And uh, I mean, she was saying something completely similar and, and aligned with what you're offering. And, and what she was also offering was, I mean, uh, also what I hear in, in your perspective, a call to a re-evaluation of, you know, the core value system that's informing this reality that we're creating. I mean, I, you know, you spoke to this idea that the natural world is not intelligent, you know, and that we are somehow these apex organisms that, you know, have a, a superior understanding of what's going on. Are there other beliefs that, I mean, you can articulate, like, specifically that are are foundational to this this false reality that we've created that we have to address or or other ways that we have to start kind of thinking of our place in the world? Well, yeah, the, you know, for centuries... Earth peoples of various sorts have been saying that the path that human beings were taking was in error. You know, the Romantics right. spoke about it in depth. Artisans, farmers who worked in concert with the land, indigenous and tribal cultures everywhere, and all of these people have been denigrated as superstitious, as simple, as unchristian, as primitive. And everything that they've said has been rejected. But basically, we find ourselves now um, in the midst of what they warned about, you know, earth systems in ruins, everything beginning to fall apart because of the paradigm that we've been trained in and insisted upon just simply doesn't work. It has no real relationship to what really is. Mm -hmm. So... You know, one of the major, and you have to understand that most of what's happened in the West and and with the emergence of science, it came out of a monotheistic Christianity uh, began right. a couple of thousand years ago. And that monotheistic Christianity was a completely um, opposed, violently so, to any kind of an animist perspective. And basically the belief that everything that we encounter on Earth is alive, intelligent, aware, deserves to be treated as we would treat another human being, that, you know, it deserves um, reverence and that there's a communicatory capacity there. This is the oldest perspective that human beings have ever had about the world around them and their their place in it. And children naturally take that on. I mean, that's just the way they are when they're born. They have to be trained out of that mm -hmm. very vigorously so over time until they believe that human beings are the only intelligent life form on the planet. But there's so many flaws in that paradigm. I mean, how many people have those people met that say, we're the most intelligent species on the planet. I mean, mm -hmm. what they actually mean is some people are the most intelligent species on the planet, and, you know, I'm one of them, and I know all the others. But the rest <laughs> of the people are sort of, you know, deplorable plebes, you know. That, totally. That can't really... Epsilons. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, one of the, you know, there was that dissociation. There was a, an imperative of the impersonal that everybody's been trained in that, you know, when you think about then scientists, in the beginning, scientists were nothing like what they are now. Mm -hmm. Their 
they were many groups and many different ways of doing science, many different ways of being of doing reason and thinking. We don't think of that now, but what really happened was what I consider the most pathological and the most psychologically damaged of the natural philosophers ended up taking over what's now called science. Hmm. And when you think about their orientation, they have a dissociation from the world around them. They don't have empathy for the life forms around them. They um, believe that they can manipulate those life forms in any way they want. There's a certain glibness or an arrogance to their position. And when you start looking up, if you look up all of the characteristics of a psychopath, hmm. those are exactly the same characteristics that scientists and physicians are trained in hmm. to do their work under the guise that that dissociation will make their work somehow more legitimate. But what it really does is it destroys everything, all the life around us. You can see it just if you go out anywhere, the open pit mines and the clear-cut forests and on and on and on and on. That's what this kind of psychopathology does. So mm -hmm. they had a good run at it. They said that what they were doing would lead to all kinds of wonderful things, but it really hasn't. The cost for the things we do have has been very, very high and now threatens um, all life on Earth. And right. so, you know, the things, it's the orientation that has to be shifted is that, you know, we're not, we don't, we're not the only intelligent life form inhabiting a ball of resources hurtling around the sun. That's what we're trained in, but it's not true. Everything around us is intelligent and aware, sentient, capable of communication. All people knew that once upon a time. All children know it when they're born. Mm. That's foundational. Any belief that rejects that has something wrong with it because it's inaccurate to the world around us. And we also have to understand that all of us are prey. <laughs> all of us are eventually intended to be folded back in to the soil of this planet. Right. And sometimes the prey is a crocodile. Sometimes it's a virus a billion years older than our species. We have to understand that there's this cycle of life and death, and if you begin looking at, with this kind of eye, at the um, news media articles and things, you'll see that there's a tremendous fear of dying mm. in virtually everything that you're going to read, that there's this, especially in the United States, this drive for eternal youth, for never getting old, for never suffering, for never dying, and part of what the medical system has done, which is kind of this strange scientific offshoot anyway, has said that one day that they will uh, eliminate death entirely and will right. live forever. Right. That's an incredibly pathological perspective. Hmm. So when you look at how that we've been trained to remove the response of our heart to what's presented to the senses, that we've been trained to not feel the livingness of the world, that we've been trained to believe that it's insentient that, and not really alive and aware, what we need to do is the opposite of that. We need to rekindle 
the response of our heart to what touches us from the world. We need to redevelop our feeling sense, our sense of wonder that we had as children, our respect and reverence for the life forms around us, mm-hmm. to do basically the opposite of everything that a reductive mechanicalistic science has been telling us. That's the struggle, and it's a very difficult one because most peoples in the Western industrialized nations and even quite a bit in the Asian nations now our very self-identity is wrapped up in what we've been taught. Right. To change that is very difficult because we lose a certain standing <laughs> in, our, in our perspective about things. We become not so very important anymore. Mm-hmm. And, and then in a way, when you look at what's happening in the world, we've received a terminal diagnosis. It's a terminal diagnosis for our civilization. And it's basically to change what's happening. We would have to stop the use of all hydrocarbons in whatever form, period, right now. But that's impossible. Most people just sort of get focused on oil and gas and things, but they don't realize virtually all of the medicine, the pharmaceuticals people take are made from oil. Right all the plastic bags, but if you start looking at plastic, you suddenly find plastics in everything. Even the fruit I buy here has a little plastic sticker on it in the store. Everything has that plastic. So to completely stop the modification of hydrocarbons would completely destroy the infrastructure, the economics of the entire planet. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to do that, so the Earth is going to have to force us stop. So we've got this terminal diagnosis, and if you begin looking at how everybody's responding, what they're doing is all the things everybody does when they get a terminal diagnosis. No, that's not true. Mm. I want a second opinion, a third, a fourth opinion. No, the doctors don't know what they're talking about. I can keep smoking. I don't care if there's a tumor in my lung or not. It's not going to kill me. And they're afraid. They're terrified. They don't know what to do. They don't have... They haven't been trained in the skills or the tools to respond to this kind of a dynamic. So that's why I tend to refer to all of this, is that mm-hmm. there's one paradigm is collapsing, another paradigm is struggling to come into being, but that older paradigm is infused into virtually every aspect of human culture, life, civilization, our very self-identity. And so mm-hmm. to change that is very, very, very difficult, as it's been every time a paradigm shift has occurred in the human world. And and would you say, I mean, to weave this back into this, the other book that you're working on, on, on Earth Grief, I mean, as a, I work as a therapist right now, and what I find, you know, when people are attempting to shift their ways of being their, you know, typical patterns in their life, there is always a wall of grief that they will have to encounter at some point in their healing process for the fact that they have been abiding by, you know, patterns that maybe weren't the best for them or the people in their lives, and to to really reckon with the damage that they've done through inhabiting and and operating from those those patterns. And like, I mean, that I feel like if we're we're to stop as a collective right now and really look at what we've done and the the implications and the the you know 
crazy damage that we've created and just really to to actually address and and acknowledge how we've been living on the planet like i don't think we're good at grief you know is that really like what you're focusing on in the book is is how to do that grieving process or can you say more about where you're going with it we in the western cultures were very very bad at grief yeah just terrible at it and part of the reason i think is that grief is such a passive event you know, if I if I become afraid, I, I pretty much consider us to have four basic emotional states, and then the more sophisticated, complex ones are sort of assembled by combinations of those. So, mad, sad, glad, and scared. You know, and right. that that's very nice to do it that way because it reduces it down to a simplistic thing when you're struggling to identify what kind of emotions you're you're kind of dealing with as you begin to go through therapy or your own internal self-examination in that particular journey. So, you know, mad is pretty good. There's a lot of energy. There's a lot of energy to solve right. a problem. That's right. kind of what mad is. You know, scared is you've gotten some sort of signal that there's a change in the status quo that, you know, so you don't feel safe. And then usually what people do is they, you know, get mad or right. else they run away. So it's a very, fear is a very active thing. You know, gladness, happiness, that's a very active thing. You know, we dance, we laugh, we tell jokes. Uh, but then we get the sadness to grief. Now, all you can do is just feel it. Mm-hmm. And there's nothing else to do with it. You can't, people do try to turn it into other things. People... Um, take a lot of medication so they'll never have to feel it. Mm-hmm. If they feel fear, sometimes they take a lot of medication so they won't have to feel that. Mm-hmm. But when we are dealing with very severe grief, it's a, it undoes a person. And all you can do is just sit there and weep, really, and feel the pain of loss of what's happened to you. And that forces a descent of the self, you go into this interior place where you are alone, where you're forced to face yourself in ways that most people don't do or aren't trained to do, that you have to examine a lot of, forced to examine by the pain of it, a lot of different things. Mm -hmm. And people will do virtually anything to avoid that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think women are better at feeling grief more naturally than men are for whatever reason, and yet the self-examination that's demanded by grief is something that neither men nor women are very comfortable with doing. And one of the things I've seen when people go through therapy, for instance, um, most people, as you know, they won't go into therapy until they've tried everything else they possibly can. You know, it's like, you know, and then finally they go, oh, shit, you know, I have to go into therapy. (laughs) Uh This is really horrible. You know, I have to actually talk about myself. Uh I actually have to hear truths about things I don't really want to hear. So it's really when you get to rock bottom that people begin to face up to the fact they need to change. And then a lot of the times what I've seen is that all of a sudden people realize how much of their life they've wasted mm-hmm. in living a kind of lie. And the grief that begins to come from that is just tremendous. They have to grieve all of the lost 
possibilities. Mm -hmm. They have to grieve the child that had a different kind of life ahead of them that will never be had now. Mm -hmm. And the thing about grief is that it forces us to come to terms with what is true now. Right. And in a lot of ways, the grief is composed of letting go of the fantasies, the thoughts, the speculations, the projections, whatever they might be, the illusory perspective we had about our life and life around us. And the, the fascinating thing about it is Grief will often last a very long time, depending upon the reason it's being initiated. But what begins to happen after a while, after you've been immersed in grief quite often for years, is that there's a kind of a gravitas mm. that begins to enter life that was never there before. You might say, before grief, we live in a state of optimism. After grief, we learn the nature of hope, which is a very different thing indeed. Mm -hmm. And hope is a slow-moving, deep thing, a faith, a kind of faith, really, in life itself. Optimism is the belief that we'll be safe, that we'll get the outcomes we want, that the world will respond to our wishes, that we won't have to deal with pain or loss. And optimism is really what was in the, the last thing in Pandora's box. It wasn't hope, because optimism is the worst thing of all hmm. when you're trying to deal with what's really true. So as, as the grief then begins to interweave itself through every aspect of the human being, you become more solid, more grounded, more centered, and it's the only way I know of that wisdom enters a human being's life. And that's what I think elders, their real function is, that they have finally gone through the journey of grief and they take on a kind of a wisdom and a, a depth and a groundedness that young people just don't have. Not all people, of course, become elders. Many just become old <laughs> and bitter or whatever they do. Mm -hmm. But... That's really, I think, the function of grief. And, you know, this book is being written for people that feel a close affinity with the Earth and the Earth's ecosystems, that struggle with those feelings of horrible loss when they see what they love being destroyed, and that really don't know what to do with it. The um, suggestions about what to do for it that are in the media or even in scholarly journals are incredibly sophomoric. You know, it's basically they're all suggestions on ways to avoid making that right. descent in the journey into the depths of grief. Right. And so, you know, because I studied with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and other people working with the dying, then that's where I look mm -hmm. because it's only the people that work with the dying that understand what the journey of grief mm -hmm. is really about. Which, I mean, goes back to your point, you know, of us existing in this highly death-denying, death-aversive society. And that, I mean, without some working sort of a, well, constant, I think, working awareness of, of the fact that death is part of the life process, that, like, we can't actually 
ever grieve properly because we're always trying to pretend like, you know, it's not happening. I don't know if you encountered or saw that article that um, Yuval Harari wrote in The Guardian, and it was at the beginning of the pandemic. And I think the the title of it was something like, will this uh, finally allow us to reframe our relationship to death? You know, and, and his position was, this is this beautiful opportunity in a sense for us to look at how our medical system is operating, how we define healing, you know, is is it just the absence of death or is it something bigger? Should we be aspiring to something more in our in our healing processes? And I mean, I don't think it received much traction. It was an amazing article, though. But his position was, you know, we need to to be psychologically sane and functionally, you know, operating as a species on this planet. We need to be re re. Uh, engaging with death as you know the first noble truth that this is like going to happen but uh, did you see that article it was amazing yeah i did and i i you know i tend to print those off because they're sort of part of the background of the book that i'm working nice. on and I've, you know, I've got a huge bibliography <laughs> totally. but the you know the thing about it is I've been seeing things sort of like that for at least nearly 50 years right. in the media about trying to change the medical system. And, you know, and 40 years ago, I worked with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross and a lot of people who worked with terminal cancer patients and spent time in that world. Nothing has changed. If anything, it's mm-hmm. gone even faster along the course that everybody's wanting us to change. Physicians are actually incredibly poor at their jobs. They're not Mm -hmm. trained well. They aren't trained um, how to work with people who are dying. They might get a three-credit course in medical school about that. They don't know how to establish rapport. They tend to be very arrogant and actually, oddly enough, not very educated about the nature of disease or the processes that people go through. What they do is they look at us as a car whose parts are not quite working. They deal with that. And then if you have any feelings, they say, oh, I talk to the social worker, mm-hmm. which is also pathological. They, and I've seen things, maybe you've seen them in physicians and nurses dealing with the coronavirus and all of the people dying in an ICU. Uh, several of them have said, you know, I, this is not what I signed up for. <laughs> And I look at that and I go, yeah, it's exactly what (laughs) you signed up for. Don't you know anything about your job? Totally. And so, you know, but it's true that we need to change our relationship with death, but we are a Mm death-phobic culture in the West. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I literally every week, if not more often, I see an article about how we're going to live to be 150 mm-hmm. or we totally. can download our consciousness into computers on the moon are, you know, if only we do these, you know, in the United States, it's impossible to die of old age. Right. You die of smoking or a bad diet or, you know, a heart, you know, a heart disease, but you had the heart disease because you didn't eat the right food or something. And we just were terribly afraid of that. And we're terribly afraid of old people because, you know, just looking at them leads to thoughts about stuff we just don't want to think about. Right. And young people pretty much think, well, that's never going to happen to me. But, of course, it does. And I'm dealing with my own terminal illness now. I don't know how long I've got, hmm. two years, four years, eight years. But I'm definitely 
uh, in that latter stage of life. And when people that I know find that out, even very good long-term friends, I've had a significant number of friends just go away because they can't deal with it. Wow. The general response for a lot, from a lot of people is, oh, hey, you got to buck up. I mean, you know, things could change. And I'm like, no, I have this spear through the center of my body. It's not going to change. You know, it's like I had this arrow through my neck. It's not going to change. You know, but they just won't. They just won't. Get you can the fix fact. it. You can fix it. You can fix it. Yeah, look, you use this band aid. I'm sending. I'm sending healing rays. You know, have you tried putting the white light around the purple light? <laughs> you know, and the doctors that I that I, I don't go to physicians that much, but they're the same way. You right. know? And I'm like, no, there's nothing that you can do for what I have. Yeah. I, you know, I'm it's I'm going to last as long as I last. Maybe I can. I have slowed it down a lot with the herbal medicines I use, and I have an okay quality of life. But that's just the way that it is. I knew I was going to die in my 70s mm. from when I was a little kid. I think if most people ask themselves seriously, like, you know, how long am I going to live? There'll be a number that just pops into mm-hmm. their head. Mm-hmm. And of course, then they'll spend the rest of the time after that, you know, like, going, well, you know, what I could do is, you know, I could, right. I could put the white light around the purple light, you know? right. <laughs> but it's just the way it is. And so I stopped talking about it very much because it so upsets people. But nevertheless, when you move into the last stage of life, you begin to deal with it immediately when you make the transition from late middle age into early old age. And mm. when you start to become ill or get an illness that won't quite resolve and you enter the world of chronic illness, then you're dealing with a truth that most of the culture in the medical profession is just not willing to deal with. Mm -hmm. And then you start to become aware that we live a great deal in the land of the dead. Most of the things around us have come from the dead. The forests, the buildings have been built by the dead. You know, our genome is composed of gifts from the dead that have have traveled through time. Mm that we still have inside of us. And it then becomes important to start to look at the, the dissolution process. And because as we move from, you know, you can see this more easily in children because they have developmental stages that are quite clear that they go through Nine months is different than two years, different than four years, different than eight is different from 16. There's all of these different sort of identities that come into being mm-hmm. that seemingly are generated out of the, the biology of the body that there's this shift, and then all of a sudden this new identity comes into being. All the others are, of course, still there. They're not lost, but they represent new capacities of the self, new ways of seeing the world and of working with challenges that we have that give us great adaptability, that process slows down as aging goes on. But a 20- or 5-year-old is very different than a Mm 16-year-old, and a 35-year-old is different, and there's this change. So when we go from young adulthood into middle age, which is recognized as a major shift, though it tends to be denigrated a great bit, you know, um, oh, you know, he's the midlife crisis. But that same process is happening in older 
developmental stage is falling away and a new one's coming into being. And it's a very hard transition for many people. Right. Just like the transition from childhood into young adulthood, that movement through adolescence is a very, very difficult stage for many, many people. And there's a great deal of grief in it. Mm-hmm. If you begin to look at teenagers and understand that they're in a terrible grief, it begins to change our interpretation of what they're going through. Totally. The same thing happens in midlife. Women, because they begin to enter menopause, go through tremendous grief for a long time because their very identity as a person Mm -hmm. is shifting. And they don't know how to let it die. No, they don't. There's not a lot of permission in our culture for letting the younger, reproductive, vibrantly sexual self the way it was fade away. They begin to feel that they're useless. And so to many men who go from young adulthood into middle age. Mm -hmm. Then there's the transition that happens at late middle age into early old age, and that one is where the eldering process should really occur, but there's even less support for that than there is for the transition between young adulthood and middle age. And, you know, and from... What I understand, for people that live much longer than I'm likely to, there's actually further stages beyond that that many indigenous cultures talk about, ones that you enter into in the late 80s or early 90s, another one that you enter into in the late 110s or so, something like that. And there's just very little discussion of these further developmental stages that come into being. Um, But nevertheless, if we don't embrace the shift, what we do is we become a caricature of ourselves. Everybody's seen that. People, middle-aged people that are still trying to act as if they're 28, that dress as if they're 28, that wear makeup as if they're 28. Well, and we have this, I mean, as you were mentioning before, like the capacity to shoot your face up with a bunch of shit that makes you look kind of like you're 28, you know, and you can maintain that in a sense. And it, it's so almost too easy to, to try to stay committed to your past version of, of self. To become a genuine human being and to be honest with yourself is one of the yes. hardest things yeah. I've ever done in my life. And it's a constant struggle because to become genuine, to be honest with yourself, you have to engage with truths that are quite often very difficult to endure. And so mm-hmm. all of us lie to ourselves. It's, you know, it's like we keep lying to ourselves until virtually no other other option is available to us except for looking in the mirror one day and telling ourselves the truth. And that, again, of course, mm-hmm. brings us back into the territory of grief. So, grief, yeah. You know, all of this for me, since for whatever reason, when I was very young as a teenager, my family was very dysfunctional. I left home at 16. And I began to follow this kind of journey that I'm on where I became um, eventually immersed into the green world and into plant medicines and working with 
the deep ecological realities of the livingness of Earth. And for people that do that, there's a certain kind of truthfulness or genuineness that's forced upon us because the Earth doesn't lie. It's one of the things that people don't really get. The Earth tells the truth all the time. And that's one of the things I liked about it because there's no hidden agenda. There's no, like, you know, I'm, this thing I'm going to be surprised by later on. And to do that, to walk into the world that way and to allow the world to teach me how to become a human being and how to sit in the circle of life as kin rather than a dominator or anything else, it's the best kind of life I could ever have found, ever. I consider myself very lucky to have found that. And, of course, now when we're dealing with the collapse of wild ecosystems, um, that brings its a particular kind of challenge and demand on each of us that love the earth and the wild uh, to do our best in response to what's happening. Stephen, are you familiar with um, Francis Weller's work? He wrote The Wild Edge of Sorrow. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, what do you think about that that concept? I mean, the, the main sort of thesis, I think, of his work that, you know, what you said before of grief being this very um, sort of passive process and, and something that doesn't have all the, the energy and intensity of our other emotional experiences, but that, I mean, our ancestors knew that the process of ritualizing grief, you know, creating this intentional container was essential. I live... Um, in an area uh, in central BC where it said that the the worst atrocities committed uh, on the indigenous people and the worst residential school you know known in Canada existed here and we are sort of in this melting pot of i think there's 13 different indigenous tribes that existed in this area and when i moved back this is a long-winded story but when i moved back from san francisco my teacher at the time said you know you're going back to a place where there is so much pain and it's in the earth and it's in the people and it's unresolved, it's unintegrated. And there's going to be, you know, a lot of healing work that has to happen there. And we, um, I have run sort of a, a version of despacho ceremonies, which is a, a traditional South American ceremony of, of saying, not sorry, but like allowing the grief of ancestors and the land, you know, to be in a sense, channeled through a ceremonial circumstance, much like Francis's work, like the idea that we create a ritual space for grief. Do you do you put it, you know, much weight or or sort of faith in that process? I I have been because I grew up in a family. My mother was really not well psychologically, and mm. she appeared normal, but she wasn't, and so there was a great deal of psychological cruelty in her interactions with me and with other people. Um, and she could mimic genuineness. So I, I became very sensitive to um, the difference between form and essence. And my great-grandparents and my mm. father's grandmother were very different. They were very genuine. When they said, I love you, what they meant was, I love you. When my mother said it, what she meant was, you ruined my entire life. I hate you. Okay. So I wow. became very sensitive to the difference between the form and, the, and what's inside the form. So 
And over the last half century, I've seen a lot of people, when they talk about ceremonies or rituals, you know, that a lot of times what they're doing is they're um, creating a form, but what's inside the form is, is um, right. funny. It feels funny to the, to the heart, to the part of me that senses genuineness are. Um, I mean, and part mm-hmm. of, you know, I learned how whenever I encounter anything, I always look at, okay, this is kind of a hard thing to, to um, put into words. Let me, let me get to it this mm-hmm. way. One of the things I learned how to do was pay attention to the process of experiencing rather than the experience. So there's a part of me right. that is always observing very minutely and acutely with great sophistication. So when I encounter something, I will be going through, I will be experiencing the thing I've encountered. And there's a part of me that's standing to the side watching the process of experiencing all the little minute changes and shifts that occur during my experiencing. And that's a way to... Um, it's a way of understanding the interaction of meanings that come toward me from the world around me. We have the, an incredibly sophisticated capacity for experiencing meaning at very uh, subtle levels of that. And so I trained myself over many, many years to be able to analyze the dynamics of meanings by carefully paying attention to the experiencing process, okay? That way the whole Mm -hmm. thing that's happening is kept alive. When you just deal with the experience, it's a kind of a downstream thing. It's it's, uh, static. So when I go into any experience, one of, you know, it's very simple at first. It's, is this thing I'm reading is this landscape I'm in, is this restaurant, is this person, is this communication, whatever, do I feel more whole or less whole while this is going on? Mm -hmm. And then it's, in what way do I feel less whole, in what way do I feel more whole, and to begin to analyze that. So quite often these rituals, people in the West are absolutely consumed by a focus on the exterior, and that comes very much from a reductive science, very much from monotheistic Christianity. You know, everybody dresses in suits and speaks nicely, but, you know, inside those lives, <laughs> there's a lot of darkness. So I'm not a big fan of prescribed rituals, and because to me, anything can become a ritual. When you encounter um, a loss, or a grief, or some reality, you can begin to then generate a very specific ritual that comes out of the depths of yourself to deal with it. Like where I live here in Silver City, New Mexico, there very near to us is a place called Fort Bayard, and that's where all of the army was um, encamped. That chased Geronimo around this region for many, many years. The Apaches were destroyed mm-hmm. here, and there's this tremendous grief.
still in the land and in the people and in this town, which most of the people aren't aware that part of the, mm-hmm. you might say, the, the climate of mind and heart that they live inside of is infused with this particular grief. So, you know, just um, each of us has to find a way to deal with that reality in our own way, you know, to look at the people that have died, what's the the bloody um, the bloody kin that lie in the ground and begin to speak to them. And the very first thing that's necessary is for us to hear and receive their grief. And then we do whatever we do with it that seems congruent to us. Part of the problem I have with a lot of the in, the tribal dynamics that go on in North America about what's happened to them. And, you know, I don't in any way mean to excuse the genocide that occurred. It was horrific. It came out of um, human exceptionalism. It came out of a monotheistic Christianity and a science that labeled all of these people untermenschen, which is what the, the Germans labeled mm. the undesirables, the subhumans. They were considered that, and what happened is, if you read any stories about what occurred, the horrific, and no real um, resolution has happened in the American consciousness for that stuff in the North American consciousness. So that remains a, a bloody wound inside everyone here. Nevertheless, if you look at it in terms of individual psychotherapy rather than um, sociologically or culturally, which I don't really think is very useful anymore, though I did when I was younger, if you look Mm -hmm. at a tribal culture that's struggling with what happened to their ancestors, the milieu that they live inside of now, if you change that to an individual human being, not a group of people, and you assume that person with that history is coming to you in therapy, it shifts the dynamics of what you would suggest, okay? Nearly everybody I know was harmed in their childhood by something. We all carry wounds. I've only met a couple of people who don't, and they actually um, pretend mm-hmm. they have wounds so they'll fit in. I think they're, very, they're really funny. <laughs> but anyway, so, and some of our wounds are, can be thought of as relatively mild. Some of them are extremely not mild. And when I went into group psychotherapy, I thought I'd had the worst family on the planet until I, you know, was in group with a woman whose mother had put her in the oven to burn out the devils in her. Oh, my God. Are a young man whose father buried cats in the ground up with just their heads showing and then turned on the lawnmower. Oh, no. There's very horrible things that happen to people. Oh, I know. That as therapists we've encountered. But there is no psychological way out of those conflicts. There is no way that a, a woman who comes into therapy who's 35, she still has a four-year-old inside of her, you know, and that four-year-old mm-hmm. will sooner or later ask the question out loud that they've had all their life, why did mommy burn me with cigarettes all the time? 
there is no answer. I mean, if you tell them, well, mommy was just, there was something wrong with her, she wasn't well, that's not a sufficient answer. I've never actually seen it work. Mm -hmm. What is true is that if the person then begins to look at what did it teach them, what qualities of character Mm -hmm. did it bring out in them, what is what it's sort of like you get to what was the soul teaching in it what was the mythic element Mm -hmm. of it then it becomes a kind of empowerment what i got from my mother's brutality was the ability to pay exquisite attention to the meaning of things and it enhanced Mm -hmm. an already natural sensitivity that i was born with but none of the work that i've done since I went out on my own could have occurred without that happening to me. So then it changes from me being a victim to me being the soul shaping. It becomes the soul shaping I needed to have to become myself. So Mm -hmm. as long as we're stuck in a victim position or as long as we look at tribal peoples as if they've been victimized and that they're at the effect of that, we're perpetuating that whole drama triangle dynamic of victim, persecutor, and rescuer, which doesn't ever lead anywhere. The way out is to ask yourself, what soul training did I receive from this? What have I learned from it? And what do I do now? What do I want to do now with this thing? How do I become more myself because of it rather than live my life feeling as if I've been diminished, which is, as you know, what most people in therapy are really struggling with, that sense of diminishment and harm and the sense of becoming ungenuine in some fashion because of what happened to them. And many tribal peoples, their groups, they feel ungenuine in their tribal identity because of what's happened to them. The question is, Mm. see, it can't be undone. The previous state of innocence can never be regained. So the question is, what has this taught us? Where do we go from here? And how does it become an empowering aspect of the self rather than a diminishment? So that's the one thing that I see missing because the governmental dynamics, many of the tribal dynamics, not all of them, Some of them have walked out of that process. Um, But as long as they're stuck within that drama triangle dynamic, everyone remains disempowered. So Mm -hmm. for me, pure grief comes, and the ability to move through it comes once that victim position is transcended. Once the drama triangle is transcended and you look at what is the soul teaching in this, why has it happened in terms of ecology, why is it termed mythically, and now what do we do about it? And then all of a sudden at that point, the grief can be let go of. There's a massive outpouring of grief. The damned river is undammed. And the grief then begins to be integrated into the self. You're not stuck at that point where you have to replay it over 
and over and over and over again. And, right. Many, right. and in many therapeutic situations, you understand, it just simply gets replayed endlessly for years. That's not the point. Totally. So that's my take on that. And for me, kind of the resolution of, of my deep look at tribal grief for myself was to understand that these things have always been in the world. They will always be in the world. Mm-hmm. And that I feel the grief of it and integrate it, and then I look at, well, okay, now what? Now what am I going to do? What steps do I take now? And then I carry that integrated grief with me as I move, and it teaches a certain kind of awareness that can't be gained any other way. It just can't. Right. It's such an interesting, I mean, you're, you put into words something that I, I think maybe I, I didn't even necessarily recognize I do when I'm working with individuals. I work predominantly with indigenous people in this area and I, I don't frame them in my own, you know, conceptualization of who they are and what their story contains through the, you know, I think fairly common social justice, uh, social, you know, cultural, uh, culturally emphasized model of like, this is a person who has experienced these horrible things and, and they, you know, are not responsible in any sense for their trauma. And I'm not saying people are responsible per se, but if you, as you're saying, you know, engage too much in the victim-based story, you are literally reducing them to a powerless individual who is incapable of processing what has occurred in their life. And I, I mean, I meet these, my clients as, as individuals. I don't see them through, I suppose, that social justice lens and help them process whatever it is that they've experienced as an individual, not as a collective. But what I heard you kind of move into there, Stephen, which was really interesting is you're, you know, you said, okay, I I want and I encourage people to look at their individual grief, but then you started saying or speaking like, how do we process this as a collective and how do we see maybe this crazy, chaotic um, uh, decay of, of contemporary society that we're seeing right now? How do we see this as a mythic process? I mean, is that something that you encourage people to think of? Like, do you think that, I mean, I don't imagine that you suppose or suggest that we are going back to, you know, pre-science, pre, I don't know, industrial development days through this process or that 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 would be beneficial for us as a species. Like that this too, this, this crazy, whatever thing that we're moving through is a meaningful process that has some gift within it, a soul gift. We have to look at it that way. If we don't, totally. we remain simply victims. This doesn't mean that bad things don't happen. Bad things do happen that are very painful. People experience terrible losses. If you read in depth, as I have, any of the stories of what happened to the tribal peoples when the Europeans came over, the stories are horrendous. Oh, totally. And those stories still remain in the people, and they remain in the land, and they remain in the people who came over, in their descendants. Mm -hmm. It's a truth that can't be escaped by simply willing it into unconsciousness. Nevertheless, we have to look at it in a different way. Bad stuff happens. It always has. 
it always will. We're looking at it um, in this kind of a strange way now um, from a modern sensibility, but um, we have to look at it in in much larger and broader contexts. Like bad stuff happens, okay? It's happened to virtually everybody I know, really bad stuff sometimes. Mm -hmm. The question is not whether bad stuff happened, but what do we do with it now? Right. As long as we're stuck in the cycle of the drama triangle, persecutors, victims, and rescuers, there isn't ever any way out of that. The real question becomes, what do I do with my life now? What did I learn from this? On a mythic level, why did it happen? On a soul level, why did it happen? What did it teach me? What gifts did I get from it? What do I do now? And to then begin to build an identity where what happened became a teaching. And there's many teachings in what happened to a native tribe. Some of the native tribes you know, yeah, they had difficulties, but they dealt with it far differently than than many of the other tribes did. And they right. made it through relatively unscathed compared to many of them. You know, the Apaches down here had a very, very hard time, but um, the Nez Perce not quite, you know, the Nez Perce a bit different, um, the Ojibwe a bit different still. So then you begin to look at there's these individual teachings for all of them. It's not a blanket that they all experienced it in the exact same way, but the old world is gone. Mm -hmm. And the question is, Mm -hmm. what happens now? It's not any different than any of us who have gone through our own therapy where we look at the, the terrible things that happened to us in childhood. Many people, as you know, as a therapist, they get locked into that dynamic, then they can't escape it. If only this stuff hadn't happened, then I would be happy. You know, I wouldn't have all these wounds I have to deal with. Well, the thing is, yeah, but it did happen. Now what? Okay. Now what are you Mm going to do with it? What self-identity will you have? What learning did you get from it? What what positive attributes came out of it? If my mother hadn't been the way that she was, I wouldn't be extremely sensitive as I am to subtle shifts in meaning in mm-hmm. people's behavior and in their linguistics, to feel the shifts in the meaning of things as I walk into a restaurant or somebody's home and to be able to then analyze what all of those things mean and where they come from, how they were generated. All of my work came out of that. So I could have chosen to remain in a victim position, and I did for many years because, you know, whining, I mean, it's kind of fun, really. You know, it's like, oh, man, you know. It's kind of pleasant, totally. You know, because I fucked over when I was a kid, Uh and that's why everything's shitty and I don't have any Uh money. You know, Uh it's like, and that works, but after a while, (laughs) nothing ever changes, you know. Right. But you know what I see in people, Stephen, is, and I think you kind of alluded to this earlier, is that, um, I find, you know, when I'm working one-on-one with people that they will speak about, you know, atrocities that may have happened in their childhood 
And then they want to skip to the meaning without navigating the grief in between. You know, the actual reckoning with um, how they experience, you know, that that four-year-old that you were talking about, you know, who comes up and says, here's my pain. Here's what I suffered. This is my anger. You know, they want to go right to, oh, but it taught me this. And it's it's really, it's cerebral. It's not it's not integrated. It's not a knowing of like, whoa, this was a soul path that was beneficial on some level for me. Yes, but it was also harmful. They want to skip the the pain part, the processing part, right? And go right to the product in a sense of like, oh, I want to be a person who's okay with this. I find people um, often utilizing gratitude in this way, you know, where they want to go to, oh, I was, I'm, uh, it's, it's a good thing that this happened because, you know, I, I should be just grateful that I am not a, a person who's starving or whatever. And there's this misapplication of what I think of as really sacred tools like gratitude, like meaning, you know, a, an integrated sense of meaning. Um, and we're doing it in a really superficial, I mean, as Chagrin Trumpet spoke about, like this spiritual materialism kind of mode of like taking these things that are immense and, and so important and, and denigrating them to the level of the ego, you know, where it's like, we don't, we're still trying to avoid something that we don't want to do, which is continuously, you know, this process of grieving. Right. And people are very clever. I mean, they really are. They're really, really clever. Totally. So, you know, <laughs> totally. anything to avoid yeah. actually dealing with the real feelings that are in there. Absolutely. People get really good at that because why? Because those real feelings are very uncomfortable. So the particular therapeutic tradition that I went through and that I trained in and that I then used was, um, you know, what I would have people do that were doing that is I would have them see the little girl or the little boy that they were sitting in front of them. And when you tell them that, you know, the some age will, of its own will appear. And yeah. then I would ask them to listen to whatever that part of them had to tell them. Mm-hmm. Because that's those parts don't lie. They feel what they feel and you know that then that sort of begins this process of them not they can't really skip over it then if they actually do this and they begin to hear what the parts of them that they're skipping over really have to say and how they really feel but the the one that would really mm-hmm. so i'd start like that easy and then eventually i'd go to the place i would say uh oh see the little infant that you were lying on the ground in front of you. Mm -hmm. And to watch what they do, most people have a hard time with the infant that they were. And um, especially, I think, um, well, they, they really generally do quite often. And so then I would have them describe how the infant looks. And that will tell you a lot about how they feel about the most vulnerable parts of themselves, how they genuinely feel, mm-hmm. and then describe what the infant's doing. Quite a lot of times, the infant would be very pale and not moving and not breathing. I mean, not oh. always. Sometimes uh, the infant is very active and is basically saying its own version of, fuck you, you lousy bastard. You haven't paid attention to me for 30 years, <laughs> you know? And the person's like, oh, God, I don't want to go there. You know? so, but yeah. then they go through this work of, making relation with this most vulnerable part of them that was damaged. And then I would have them pick up 
eventually in the process pick up the child and whether they're male or female pick up that infant and begin to breastfeed it it's a really powerful Mm -hmm. process because they get in touch with the part of them that is most vulnerable and most hurt and they can't then go to skip over it to yeah but i learned a lot because they're dealing with the suppressed parts of them that were damaged and the whole point of this you might say we start out in life as 360 degree personalities and as we go along these parts of us are cut off and put and you know as robert bly called it the long bag of sorrow we carry behind us you know i tended Mm -hmm. to think that we put Mm -hmm. them in a locked room where we can't hear their crying anymore but in any event Bly was much better at his imagery, this long bag of sorrow that we carry behind us, and they're trapped in there, and eventually over the years, every part of us goes in the bag, you know, all of the parts that we don't like or that society doesn't approve of or that our parents don't like, until finally there's just a sliver of us left, you know, and all of the parts in the bag begin to develop tremendous energy over time. And they begin to make a lot of noise. And after a while, Mm. people that are brave enough or honest enough about the shithole that their life has become, they open the bag and begin to look inside. That's a tough, tough thing. And then they, you know, Mm -hmm. there's always going to be some part that wants to jump out first, you know, that's really pissed. It comes out of the bag and begins to berate them (laughs) how they've been treated. You know, you lousy bastard, look what you've done to me. And so, you know, then they're like, you know, Mm -hmm. some people just shove it back in the bag and close it. But a lot of people, they have the bravery to go through this process, to reclaim the parts of themselves they've disowned over all the years. And it takes a long time. It's a one part at a time, and you have to hear what it has to say to you, and you have to deal with the damage Mm -hmm. you've done to yourself. Just because my mother did these certain things to me didn't mean I had to continue doing them to myself. Mm -hmm. That's a hard thing to get to for people. Totally. Yeah, this thing that happened in the first 16 years of my life, I've been doing it for another 30 so then you have to apologize. Pretty well ingrained. You ha- yeah, you have to apologize. You have to make yourself whole. Integrity means the state of being whole and undivided. It is impossible to have integrity yeah. as a human being if you have split parts of yourself off and put them in a bag or put them in a room and lock the door. Because sooner or later, those parts mm-hmm. are activated and they affect behavior toward yourself or others. So you begin taking them out of the bag one at a time, and you begin working with them, hearing what they have to say, not trying to, to make them be. I mean, that's one of the first things people do is, like, they try to make them be different. Well, I don't like what you're saying, so be different. And the part's like, well, screw you. Right. You know, I've been in the bag a long time. i got a lot of right. energy now, buddy, and it's built up for 40 years, and you're going to listen to me. And that's hard. Mm-hmm especially when you get to parts that have been locked up so long, they've become deformed. They become filled with, mm-hmm. you know, a pathological or almost homicidal rage about what's happened to them. Mm-hmm. And you have to receive that mm-hmm. this process of reclaiming the self to become whole again, it takes a while, and it's not an easy process. I was just going to say, when, I'm, when I work with people in that, in that sort of space as well, I'll often say to them that like the, the intensity of an emotion that you felt at two 
your adult brain like almost can't even conceptualize of, you know, because it was like nonverbal. It was it was whole body emotion, you know. And so when those parts come back, it's like the the adult part of us trying to experience that child emotion is completely overwhelmed, you know, and it it really it takes so much um, commitment, I suppose, to be able to sit with it and not try to get away from the discomfort that of whatever it's being it's being presented back to you, you know. And I think people understand that. Like I'll often say, like think about your own kid, you know, and the intensity of the emotion that they express. Like that's in you still. It's still, and this, you know, from a shamanic perspective too, is like it's the part of your soul that you cut from. And it's still experiencing that day, that moment with the same intensity it did at that time. And it you can't tell it to be quiet anymore, you know, and and it is it's such a difficult process, which requires a lot of holding. And do you think that, you know, you said such a beautiful line before that, like people who do not feel the livingness of the world, like who are not immersed in an active relationship with the world, like. Do you think that that's necessary to go through this process of of calling back parts of ourselves and being able to do this really brave healing work is to feel held because I mean I feel it I've always I've always known that and I've since I was a kid I mean as messed up as a kid as I sometimes could have was I always knew that there was like something that I was enclosed within and I feel like that's what let me go through my healing process. And it sounds like, you know, similar for you. Do you think that that's necessary for people to be able to engage with grief and do this healing work? It depends on where people really want to go. I mean, many of the people okay. I worked with and my own therapist that I worked with, they were dealing with people that would be diagnosed as borderline personality, which is basically a schizophrenic that's mm-hmm. polite. Okay, <laughs> you know that's the problem. <laughs> that was my diagnosis. <laughs> yeah, borderline personality is somebody you're dealing with, and you think yeah. they're a normal neurotic. And about three months into it, you go all of a sudden you go, "Oh my god!" Oh my god! You know? <laughs> so, so totally. The thing is with with myself, with people like that. There is no resolution in the psychological world for what they've gone through. It has to be much greater than that. They have to find a reason for it, a spiritual or soul reason for what they've gone through. There's no way a four-year-old child Mm -hmm. can understand why mommy burned them with cigarettes all the time. They just can't. You can say, well, mommy was really sick, but it doesn't really make any sense to a child. To the adult, yeah, but that's covering over what happened to the child, right? So once they begin, so the focus on, my focus has always been on individuation, which is different than Mm -hmm. becoming psychologically functional or socially functional. And so to individuate, you have to find the spiritual or soul meaning behind what happened. And in a lot of ways, native tribal peoples need to find the sole reason behind what happened to them. Now, a lot of them, of course, will think that's crap because they were abused. But yeah, but that's, it is what it is now, okay? Not what it was then. Mm -hmm. And it's what was the sole reason for animist cultures to be nearly destroyed and oppressed and harmed in this way by non-animist cultures 
what was the function? And so, to me, a big part of it was that it was a conflict in paradigms that happened. The paradigm that's coming to the end of its time now and the paradigm that we need to reclaim, okay? And there were reasons for that, you know, that I talk about in my book, Planet mm-hmm. Intelligence in the Imaginal Realm. There were important mm-hmm. ecological species, Earth reasons for all of this to occur. But basically, then what happened was European cultures ate animist cultures, and they are inside the body Right. of the Europeans that are in this country now, of their culture. And there's a reason why that stuff, why that's still there. That they haven't, they were never really completely and totally destroyed. They're maimed, seriously, yes. But what do they do now? You know, and there's a, it's a kind of a real mess. And I know mostly the American uh, tribal groups, and no, not for sure all of them. There's, you know, 500 or so. But the basically, they have this wound inside them, and the question is, what do they do now with it? Some of them have become Christians. They disavow their old ways. They, some of them, just be go to school, become lawyers. They, you know, not they in, represent their people, but they're not part of the old ways. There's very few in this culture that have remained powerful animists as they were, but we have this dynamic of an animist earth relation group of people in their millions that still exist inside of us. And I think it was Wallace Stegner that said that that the Europeans ate the animist cultures, but they still are alive inside of them. And... Mm that keeps emerging in new generations over and over and over mm-hmm. again of the the European conquerors who came here. Their children have been um, infused with this different way of being and seeing. And I think it might have been Black Elk that said, you know, the children of the conquerors that our descendants will be reborn in some of them. So oh, wow. the that animist world is inside of our culture still. And mm. in the United States for many years when I taught, I would ask people, I would say, um, where are the holy places of America? And they would all say, oh, it's the Grand Canyon or it's Yosemite or it's you know, Redwoods National Park, virtually no one, I think in all the years I did that, only one person ever said Washington, D.C. in the monuments. <laughs> Everybody else right. listed landscape. Right. If you ask that question right. in Europe, they never mention landscapes. They always mention great churches. Really? Oh, yes. We're very unique that wow. way. Wow. So inside of mm-hmm. us, is this other paradigm hmm. that came from what we we apparently we apparently I forget Wallace Stegner's words they're really nice I wish I could remember them now but we have been conquered by what we subsumed and we don't even know it interesting yeah and do you think that it 
will win out in a sense or or you know that that animist orientation i mean can it be reawakened in people to a point or to a level where they can step out of our modern out of this paradigm and i mean into whatever new one is emerging of course that is part of what's happening we're shifting from this reductive mechanicalistic paradigm to a more holistic animist paradigm once again but of course you know evangelical christians hate that rationalist atheists hate that most scientists hate that because the other system is incredibly um well it's deeply interwoven and inculcated into every aspect of modern life now nevertheless as earth systems break down those paradigms that are in play now the dominant ones they just can't work anymore that's part of what's going on is the you might say there's a psychological or kind of almost a psychosis that's running through the world population now as they realize that the paradigms that they're in are not functional and everybody's responding to that mm-hmm. in their own kind of crazy way because there is no safe ground anymore and this other animist perspective is coming out again. It's not a, you know, you can't get there sociologically or psychologically or any other way. You have to look at it ecologically. Totally. That is the foundational yeah. truth here. If there is no earth, there is no us. Okay. One <laughs> of so the great fallacies of our time, we can go to Mars. Yeah, maybe. You know, I'm not no. sure you're going to like it there. <laughs> totally. But, you Good know, luck. Yeah, go, <laughs> totally. More, more power to you. But the thing is, Earth mm-hmm. is the foundational reality. Ecology is the foundational reality, and not a reductive ecology either. And so we are mm-hmm. only an expression of this Earth in a particular form. We're mobile rhizospheres. We're you know, kind of a subset of a larger ecosystem as we move through the world. And the Earth ecosystems are becoming so seriously destabilized that they're beginning to fail and that can't support the kind of life that we've had before. We have to return, and it's not like, you know, we ha- oh, we have to recycle. You know, it's not that kind of thing. It's like mm-hmm. we're being forced to return to a more animist perspective simply because our- that is where our survival lies. And right. the... The tribal peoples of the Americas have been horribly damaged. Nevertheless, they're the residuals of an animist wisdom that run through their cultures still that have affected the children of their conquerors for centuries. And those things live as well inside of us, many of us now. We're all human beings in this process, children of Earth, finding our way as best we can. And now we are faced with the failure of Earth systems, the failure of the old paradigm that's crashing, but a paradigm that the majority of the Earth people now have invested in with their entire being and their entire survival. It's very primal. And as those things begin to fail, Mm -hmm. they don't know what to do. They haven't been trained. They haven't spent their life learning how to live outside that system or to live somewhat in harmony with it. 
they've accepted everything that it's told them and it's failing them. And there's rage and there's terror and there's everything because they sense what's happening, which is going to be a long, drawn-out process still and filled with pain. But nevertheless, this animus dynamic has infused, you might say in a way that when the Europeans ate the indigenous cultures here, something got inside of them that can't ever be gotten rid of. That animism has been growing inside us for centuries, and it's being birthed again in this new way. We're having to become children of earth again. Kicking and screaming are doing it because we choose to, but nevertheless, that's where we're being forced to go. And all of us have to deal with whatever wounds that we've been given, that our cultures have had visited upon them, that we've had visited upon ourselves, and find what strengths and teachings came from those oppressions so that we can be empowered to respond to the times that are upon us. Mm -hmm. And as people of Earth, as people of the plant, as I am, as vegetalistas, people who carry the green inside of them and walk through the world, our job is to, in whatever way that we can, facilitate that transformation from the old paradigm into the new. And there will be children that come after us who will find the words that we write, the, the tracks that we leave behind us that will help them embody this thing that's happening to them, then that they will, in their own way, there's this great relay race of soul that's occurring, and they will take the things that we leave and carry it onward into the future themselves for new generations that come after them. The work is a very long one, but we are mm-hmm. children of Earth, and we are we are the wild in human form, and we each do what has been given to us to do. And then when our time is done, it's done. We go on to whatever awaits us afterwards. And right now, that is our function. And that's part of the point of the grief that we feel. We absorb the grief of the world, of the ecosystems, of the thing that's happened, and we learn to incorporate it into every aspect of ourself until we can learn to walk unbowed and undestroyed by it. Because people need mm. to, the children need to see that there are elders amongst them who can endure the pain and the suffering of the world that is here now. And it uplifts them. It gives them heart. And that's part of the our job. Right. It seems like it, it is our job right now. Yes. So, you know, Padma Children has this line that I often will repeat to myself, you know, that... Um, to begin with a broken heart. And I think that that's her way of speaking to, I mean, what you call eldership is this capacity to, to be an elder is to be, you know, wide open in this very raw heart space of, of really acknowledging, you know, the, the horrible experiences and the pain of being alive, but not closing your heart because of it. And being able to, as you say, walk upright, even as we are carrying you know the the full realization of everything that has happened and has been done and what pain is has occurred for people 
Stephen, can I ask one last question? Because I, I don't want to keep you too long. And this no, is just that's fine. Go such ahead. an amazing conversation. No problem. I just, you know, this, um, what you were speaking about, you know, the soul lessons that emerge out of a process of, of um, chaos or, or destruction or pain. When, you know, we, we, I love this idea that we have the, the animist culture and tradition within ourselves as, as, you know, Western colonial people. Um, but what is, what do you see as the, the sole lesson of the Europeans and, and how they are my ancestors, probably your ancestors too, you know, related to the world? Like, does it relate to individuation? I mean, what you were suggesting is like the, the sort of goal that you would aspire for or give to people in, in therapy. Like, is it, I've always thought of it as like that culture teaches a, a or has the potential for teaching a healthy ego development and sense of self in a very individuated way. Um, can you speak to that and and how you kind of conceptualize the soul lesson that that's there? Well, the I'm not sure I completely understand, but let me approach it this way. In that, I think it's we take ourselves as the human species far too seriously. Always. Mm. And older indigenous cultures did not. Okay, They knew they were just part of the circle of life, right. just another life form, just another form of intelligence sitting in the circle of life. No better, no worse, just with unique um, qualities and characteristics. Okay, So the the tendency to get into a frame of human exceptionalism is very strong. It's very interwoven into everything in um, cultures now. I think Eastern as well as Western at this point. And, but if you look at things ecologically in terms of Earth itself, the view shifts considerably. You have to ask, what is, our eco, what is the ecological function of the human species? And once you begin to do that, the view changes because we're, as Buckminster Fuller once said, we're like bees, you see, bees who go out looking for honey without realizing they were also performing cross-pollinization. Hmm. So as I write about in uh, my book on plant intelligence in the imaginal realm, the the thing is that if you look at it in terms of the way Earth has developed and innovated over eons, we're basically mobile rhizospheres. That's what human beings are. And so what we've done, and the, the basic form of life on this planet is microbial. It's not, we're just simply complex microbial populations in a different form that sort of interferes with our sense of human exceptionalism but nevertheless that's the way that it is and so here we are and that there is this drive i always loved like you know they asked sir edmund hillary why did you climb everest and he goes because it was there you know it's like you know okay and but what he was really <laughs> saying is there was this impulse inside of him that made him have to do it right that he didn't really question. Right. It was a drive deeper than his conscious mind. So, and we're sending all of these things into space everywhere, 
you know, into mm-hmm. other solar systems, to all of the planets in our solar system. And they're filled with microbes. No matter what the scientists try to do to make these things sterile, they are not. And we send these things out to all of the planets in the ecosystem, to other worlds, to other solar systems, traveling through space. We're like seeds, you see, pollinating the universe, Mm -hmm. taking life places it's never been before. We're pollinators, in a sense. We're driven to do these (laughs) things, and we don't even understand why. And if you look at the Earth now, our... (laughs) Our civilization, our technological civilization, has eaten away the stored food and capacity of hundreds of thousands of years, and we have used it to build this technological civilization to send all of these microbes out in space. We're like bees, you see, performing cross-pollinization. And it took a very, very long time for Earth to become completely seeded with life. A million years is nothing to the universe or to life itself. We've dropped microbial organisms on the moon, on other planets, sent them out to other solar systems. They are just like seeds, you see. And we were driven to do this, and we didn't even really know why. Okay, We are life propagating itself. Earth is propagating itself through us. And just like what happens in the fall, we will begin to die back now that we've set seed. The Earth doesn't think about things the way we do. It thinks on incredibly long timelines. It is very hard for us to see an old growth forest cut down. There's tremendous grieving in it. But for the Earth, it's not the same because it's thinking on multi-million year, billion year timelines. And so the Earth is setting seed and it sent them out everywhere now and it will begin to die back just like everything does when the winter sets. So that's what we are. We have to learn to think in terms like that to understand our function and our purpose. You know, Many people, of course, will disagree with this. Reductive scientists just think, oh, we're just the only intelligent life form inhabiting a ball of rock hurtling around the sun, and we can do what we want with it. But, you know, (laughs) I don't think that if they treated their loved ones like that, it would get very far. (laughs) You know, so, you know, so, but the thing is, we have to look at it in terms of species time, in geologic time, and to look mm-hmm. at what actually we've done. We have harvested the resources of the planet to send microbial seeds out through our galaxy, through our universe, through our solar system. That's what happens. Mm-hmm. That's what life does. And then when they've set seed, everything begins to die back again. That's more how I hold everything and that the drive inside the Europeans that made them what they are, a lot of which, of course, I personally and from a hard place very much disagree with. But nevertheless, when you look at it in terms of Earth, Earth doesn't have the same relation to loss as we do. Right. 
things come and things go, and the earth loves everything that is, and then it's folded back into earth itself. Masanobu Fukuoka, the great Japanese farmer, said it more like this, there's things on top of the ocean and things underneath the ocean, but everything still is. So, and the earth is the ocean itself that absorbs back into itself every life form that has ever been, and then sometimes it extrudes them again onto the surface of the sea where we can see them again. Doing what Earth has done all along, which is very different, has very different goals than anything. You know, it doesn't really care about going to the store for shopping. It's a whole other focus. <laughs> and it thinks on very long timelines. So to me... Mm-hmm. We're just simply part of that process. And the drives, you know, when you ask, when they would ask people, uh, Edmund Hillary, why he climbed Everest, he would say, because it's there. He didn't know. There were impulses mm-hmm. and motivations that flow through each one of us that drives us to do certain things that we don't really understand the origin of. And those things are mm-hmm. ecological expressions that come through our species. So that the Europeans did this and became completely insane in the process, and many, much of which I disagree with, it's like a pathology that ran through that culture that they then took around the world. Nevertheless, if you look at it ecologically over a long timeline, what they did was they consumed the resources of the planet that had been built up over long timelines to send microbial organisms out into space to other planets it's the earth been has been setting seed for a long time now that it has done that and you realize that it took 500 million a billion years two billion years for life to really develop on this planet life thinks in very long timelines we have seeded life forms throughout our solar system and throughout the galaxy here Life takes its time. So we have to find a way to look at this in the broad, broadest term, the broadest scope. And one of the things, despite the terrible woundings that accompanied it, as the Europeans came over here and absorbed it, literally ate the indigenous cultures that had been here before them, those realities ended up inside the body of those people, their cultural body, their social body, and they remain there still, and they're there for a reason. They are seeds themselves, which are now Hmm. sprouting more and more green life as we turn to the next thing that, as a species, we're meant to do. doesn't mean there wasn't terrible, terrible pain and loss, horrible loss. But nevertheless, that is the way that it is. And if you begin to look at it, as even in the indigenous cultures, as they what's the word? As they grew larger, like in the Aztec nation or whatever, as they became larger industrialized type of of, of cultures, they begin to display the same kinds of pathology that the European cultures have. Right. It just happens when it gets too big. It's not like certain cultures are immune to that dynamic. Mm -hmm. So we are what we are. 
not all really that different from each other. We're all human beings on this planet expressed out of Earth for a particular form, for a particular reason, to fulfill a particular ecological function. And as individuals, we carry the soul work we've been given and we do it the best we can. And it's been given to us for a reason. And we're, you know, we're like bees. We go out thinking that we're getting honey while we perform cross-pollinization. I really love that. And there's a trust. Yeah, there's a trust that comes from that. I am a servant of Earth. Totally. And I will, that's what I am and that's what I will always remain. And I do the best I can, just as each of us does, to find our way, to find my way, to go through this transition process that we're in. And that's kind of the way it is here on planet Earth Mm -hmm. in the year 2021. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 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 Yay. (laughs) Uh, It's such a, I I love that, uh, that just the the whole, um, I mean, in a sense, the setup that you offered there, Stephen, is just so beautiful. And I mean, I, I, I know the necessity of thinking in a long-term way, you know, in terms of processes, but, but like the re, I don't know, reframing of the role of a human being um, and, and the seeding of, of their consciousness into the rest of the universe is just, it's such a, it's, it's weirdly, uh, maybe bizarrely um, comforting, you know, and so that it doesn't seem like what we are doing, what we have done on this planet, I mean, we can hold the truth that it is awful and, and immensely painful and, and has, has been such incredible destruction, but that there's also this larger um, purpose or intention behind it that we are not necessarily, you know, made uh, aware of all the time. So it's a beautiful way to think of it. Thank you. There's a lot, there's a lot more going on here than any of us realize. Life has been doing what life does for a very long time. The Earth is highly conscious and aware in its own way, and it has its own goals and long-term plans. It thinks on timelines far broader and longer than we possibly can, and it's Mm -hmm. more complex than we can possibly grasp. We're just a part of that world, of that flow. We're, We're expressed out of Earth to fulfill a particular function like every life form is, and we will then be pulled back into Earth itself when what we've been expressed to do is over. Mm -hmm. Species don't last forever here. They last for a while. Totally. And one of the hardest things for human beings to develop is humility, to understand that we just simply are an expression of life in one particular form, and we will last for a while like all life does, and then our time will be over. We will have feel fulfilled our species' ecological function. Mm-hmm. And that's not a bad thing. The memory of us lives inside Earth forever. The Earth doesn't forget. And Earth loves in a very deep mm-hmm. way. It's just Earth doesn't have the same problems <laughs> with the death that we do, right. you know, it's, uh, right. it's kind of dealt with it for, you know, billions of years, and, uh, you know, it's kind of got that part handled. So to understand ecologically, we have to think on very different timelines with a di- very different kind of way of thinking than we're used to. Right. 
And it's it's amazing. I mean, the paradox of the liberation that you find when you stop taking yourself so seriously, when you stop thinking that you are so important, I mean, as an individual, as a, as a collective, as a species, that that actually you know, allows us to be happy and, and in the moment more because we're not, you know, so, I don't know, grasping at like finding this sense of solidity and importance in our world. And we can you know, be here in a such in such a free manner as as opposed to that self-important state. That's a really, I mean, that's a very good thing. It's it's very hard for the young to understand that. Yeah, totally. It's only as we grow older that we be a, we're able to grasp that truth. And especially, I mean, that's one of the functions of elders that once they can come to terms with the fact that their time is ending and they can work through the terror they have of that, Mm -hmm. they begin to carry this kind of reality or state of being that I think is crucially important in the human world because the young are so easily frightened of Mm -hmm. things. Mm -hmm. And elders are a stabilizing force for those things. And unfortunately, in the United States... Um, eldering is not something that's either respected or understood. Very, mm-hmm. very few old people actually elder anymore. Mm-hmm. They just get old, and then they act out whatever they seize onto whatever psychopathology uh, you know that they do, and begin to act that out. Right. You know, they become caricatures of human beings, but true elders, which is not an easy thing to encompass to accomplish it's it's filled with a great deal of grief and difficulty soul struggle and so but what functional elders do in cultures is they uh, because they become unafraid they add something to a culture that's absolutely necessary for an evening and balancing in the culture itself Mm -hmm. and i was lucky because i was born in 1952 I knew um, four of my great-grandparents and all of my grandparents. And, my, you know, my great-grandparents were, uh, they were born to Civil War veterans in mm. the United States. <laughs> and they knew their great-grandparents. And there was a kind of a calmness in them, an eldering that I very rarely see in our culture anymore. And that... Um, served sort of as a template for me as I began moving from late middle age into early old age um, because I saw, I had a gestalt experience of what a human being can become if they truly elder rather than simply become old. And I think that's an important function for all of us, for you, for everybody, as we grow old to learn how to elder because the young need people who have successfully eldered. Mm -hmm. It helps reduce the terror that they feel in the face of the universe that uh, their youth is not helping them to understand very well. Only experience can bring that. Right, which brings us back to people who are willing to grieve, right? Yes. Grieving is an incredibly important thing. And I personally hate it because it's a helpless <laughs> thing. All you can do is all you can do is feel it. I'm a guy. I want to go do stuff. I want to make totally. stuff. I want to change stuff. Uh-huh. And when when 
horrible grief comes upon me, all I can do is lay there and cry. Mm-hmm. That is so unmanly. Mm-hmm. I hate it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> totally. <laughs> Nevertheless, I man up, so to speak, and I do it. And then after a while, I get a book out of it. Because <laughs> 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 I'm, I'm a horrible whore about things like that. <laughs> hey, might as well use it if it's there. Knowing is an IntelliKey production and was recorded and produced on the traditional unceded territory of the Northern Sequipnik people. All music, editing, and production by Brent Morton at Bell Tower Audio. May our hearts and minds remain open. May we meet this day with equanimity and compassion. And may we remember our belonging to this earth, to each other, and to all that is. Mm-hmm.